welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. This episode is the second part of a two-part series with Shadi Hamid. In the first part, we talked about Islamism. We talked about what Islamism is, what the different types of it are, what Islamists believe, and how many of them there are. I'm not going to try and do a recap of that. I think the episode works by itself. It's fairly self-contained. So if you want to check out the context for this discussion, please feel free to go back and start with last week's episode. With that said, I think this week's discussion stands on its own fairly well. It begins with a challenge from Shadi to me about what does it mean? How should we deal with it when large numbers of people hold views that are in conflict or in seeming conflict with secular liberalism? How should we think about that? I give my response, Shadi critiques it, and we get into it. And what it ultimately turns into a discussion of is what are the principles holding liberalism up? What are its foundations? What ultimate premises are we appealing to in order to justify a secular liberal worldview? And as you'll see, me and Shadi agree on some things and differ on others, and I'll leave it to you to sort out. Whenever I do a conversation where I get into a back and forth with a guest, and I go back and I listen to it again in edit, I always think of like a dozen things that I should have said, and even when I was doing it, you'll notice we got at one point onto the welfare state, and I had to cut myself off from taking us down a completely different path, because there's a bunch of stuff I wanted to say there. Um, but I feel like it would be unfair when I have a guest on who has, you know, maybe even subtly different views to 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 preempt the conversation with a bunch of talking points of my own. I don't think that would be very sporting. So I'm just going to let the, the conversation play as is. I guess just one clarifier here would be this is not a conversation of, like, conservative v. liberal, uh, much less of, like, religious fundamentalist v. liberal. This is two liberals of slightly different sorts discussing how liberalism should think about and accommodate illiberalism. So that's the only point I want to make in context of this episode. Just before we do get into the episode, I want to say a big thank you to everyone, well, everyone who sponsors the show in general, um, but particularly we've had a few people join over the past week to sponsor us on Patreon. The way that works is this show is entirely crowdfunded. We don't do any paid advertisements because I think advertisements spoil the quality of podcasts like this, and we don't have any, like, I don't know, corporate sponsors or anything like that. So this is a crowdfunded show, and a few more people have signed up to support it. That's really awesome. So I'm going to make a quick two-minute pitch for anyone who's listening to this to do the same. So if the episode you're about to listen to is as valuable to you as a cup of coffee from a Starbucks, which is about two bucks. Well, actually, I live in New York. It's about three bucks here, but yeah, let's say two bucks then consider sponsoring it on that basis. The way Patreon works is it's an internet service where you can provide um, financing for free internet projects. So there's a whole load of people who are doing podcasts, who are doing music, who are doing artwork on the internet. And 
are looking to find some way to get paid for that, and Patreon is that service. It's really, really easy to do. I've sponsored people on Patreon before. It takes like two minutes, and you can decide the level. Like I say, I suggested $2, but it's whatever is right for you. And what that does is that allows us to continue doing these episodes every week to a growing audience for free. I don't ever want to charge people for the podcast, so by sponsoring it, you're allowing us to go out there without putting a paywall up, and I think almost as importantly, without having to continually interrupt the thing to try and sell you a mattress or underwear or something. Like, a a number of the podcasts I like recently, this isn't even facetious, have been interrupting themselves to try and sell me underwear. I don't know about you guys, I just feel like it really undercuts their credibility. When I listen to podcasts, I want... Well, you know what's funny? I want what the intellectual dark web purports to deliver. I want people speaking honestly and fearlessly about controversial and interesting topics that are gonna provoke my... uh, intellect and imagination. I, I want to be challenged and have my intuitions pushed around. At least that's what I want. Maybe you're different. But when I hear someone who's purporting to do that switch tracks to then telling me about how these really are the most comfortable underwear and this vitamin supplement, let me tell you guys, it just it, it casts a, a, a subtle but nonetheless very real doubt on everything else that they say next. I mean, maybe I'm the only one who has that feeling. And I'll end on this. I've been thinking about this recently. In spite of the fact that the fans of many of the intellectual dark web hosts, Jordan Peterson in particular, hate me, I mean, to the extent that they're aware of me, Jordan Peterson fans, Sam Harris fans, hate me because I've criticised their idols. But here's the rub. We actually deliver to you on this podcast what they're purporting to deliver to you. We bring you fearless, intellectually open conversations about all sorts of controversial topics. Because here's the thing, when these intellectual dark web, uh, public intellectuals, I'll call them that, talk about fearlessly going and exploring controversial topics, they mean attacking people on the social justice left. And I mean, sure, that's a point of view, you're allowed to argue for that, but that seems to be the... That's all a lot of them do. We on this show have argued and done shows about reparations for slavery. We've done shows about prison abolition. We've done a show about mandatory organ confiscation. We've done all sorts of controversial areas within moral philosophy. And then we've done all sorts of controversial bits here, there, and everywhere. And we're going to do more. And it's not as if we're in an intellectual bubble. We've had conservatives on. I had Glenn Lowry on. We had a great conversation. So what you're getting here really is an open and honest exploration of all sorts of different controversial ideas outside of your bubble. And if that sounds valuable to you, please help us keep doing it, you know? Maybe I was being too hard on the intellectual dark web there. I'm sure the loyal fans will get in touch with me again. But in theory, at least, I think... The Intellectual Dark Web Project is a valuable one. I believe in honest and open and unconstrained discussion. 
I just worry that the people who say that spend 95% of their time bashing SJWs, sometimes legitimately, sometimes on the basis of straw men. So, if you like this show, and if you've listened to it repeatedly, be in the 1%. Only 1% of our regular audience donates. So, be in that 1%. And by regular audience, I mean people who, as far as I can tell, listen to you know, almost every or most of the shows. So, if you're in that box, let's... I mean, if we got that up to 5%, we'd actually have a real budget to play with. Apparently, people tell me it's quite difficult to get past 3 Like, even the big shows with really loyal followings struggle to get more than 3% of the regular viewers to donate. But... You know, whatever. If we could even get to two, it would still be pretty cool. So please do donate. It's patreon.com stroke political philosophy podcast. Patreon.com stroke political philosophy podcast. And you can find the links to that as well as our Twitter whatever pages. Um, I've been having some fun with Twitter recently, actually. Um, all on our website, politicalphilosophypodcast.com. So enough of that. Let's get straight into today's episode with Shadi Hamid. Like I say, I'm not going to preface this with any points of my own, although I will say next week's episode, I'm going to do something a bit different where I do an episode. Um, I'll actually save that for the outro, but I do um, an episode on my own views on liberalism and libertarianism. So that's not a direct response to Shadi, but that will be coming and I'll talk about that at the end. I've talked for too long now. Let's get straight into today's episode. This is The Foundations of Liberalism with Shadi Hamid. Islam is more involved in the political arena, is that necessarily a bad thing? Or to make the question more more broad, why is religion playing... So when religion plays a role in public life, we as people who are influenced by secularism in the West, we almost automatically see that as a problem. Right. It's not clear... From, from a Muslim standpoint, that premise needs... That this is not necessarily self-evident. Uh, so when people when people are saying, "Well, oh, Muslims are so political," or Islam is so politi- political, and and so Sam Sam Harris would make this would make this argument. Uh, my response would be, "Okay, fine, but why is that something that has to be solved, or why is that something that has to be changed? Why can't Muslims do that?" In whatever and and that can be progressive interpretations of Islam's role in politics or more conservative or something in between, whatever. But it's not clear to me why it's my role as an American or as a small L liberal to to ask to ask many Muslims or some Muslims to be something else. Why I mean, why are we asking that in the first place is a question that I would pose. I think well, I mean I would say from my personal political ideology, I'm, I mean, I'm skeptical of religion in general, and I'm skeptical of a, a, a role, a strong role. Like, you know, um, if I think about what my perfect society would be, 
I would, I, it, it, the majority of people in that society would be secular, which is almost like an inverse of the Muslim Brotherhood, right? I, I have a personal political, not even political, I have a personal reality that I think people lead healthier and more fulfilling lives when, um, conventional gender roles are, um, uh, are moved away from, where different sort of sexual orientations and gender expressions are tolerated, where um, it's all, all, a whole host of things, never even mind the political, just like how I choose to interact with people and live my life, like a whole host of things that I just think, um, and big quotes here, like, sort of a secular liberal worldview does just tend to have people living happier lives. So my challenge to a sort of theocratic or just religiously dominated society, be it Christian or Muslim or Jewish or whatever, would be more, I just think my own worldview is right, right? Like... So here we go. So this is... (laughs) You know? (laughs) Precisely. But, okay, so you think it's right... And I'm actually I'm actually pretty close to you on this from a personal standpoint. But that, does that necessarily mean that you need other people to be that way? So is it a personal preference or is it something that would that would have to be promoted in some kind of hegemonic fashion? And this is where I get a little bit nervous about about secularists who are more ideologically motivated they're less pluralistic and more ideological in the sense that they believe that this is the right answer. This is the final truth. And therefore they feel that they have an obligation to promote this in an aggressive and sometimes even coercive way in a manner that would restrict freedom and restrict individual choice when it comes to religious preference. Okay. And that's what worries me quite a bit because that to me is a coercive project. Okay, so yeah, um, so this is where the like the political philosophy side comes in. So let me first say I've grown increasingly unsympathetic with sort of the new atheist project and so on, precisely for some of the reasons you describe. I liked it a lot in the beginning, and I did a podcast on this which got me a lot of hate from their fans, where... Like they have moved in a more, not just on this issue, but on a number of them, a number of places I'm not comfortable with. With that said, I think those of us who are small L liberal do just need to bite the bullet and say, our, never mind our beliefs about governance, our beliefs about how people relate to each other about let's just take, like, gender roles, sexual expression, stuff like that. These are, in a sense, these are not purely personal beliefs. Liberalism, my old advisor Michael Frieden always used to say this, liberalism only appears neutral from within liberalism. Right? Um, And the idea... Human rights are not a neutral expression. They are a particular moral claim about the world. And like all moral claims that aspire to universality, they're necessarily binding on others. To even, even, but nothing, here's the thing though, nothing gets out of that. You're never going to have any moral expression that doesn't implicitly make demands on others. Even something like the value of freedom is a very contested value. It, 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 it's the particular way we understand it is quite unique in the history of the world. Even something like freedom of 
of speech is like, this is making a moral claim on other people. It's making a moral claim that that the, the, the suffering you might see if I burn a Quran is something you have to live with, right? That is, that, is a, that is a something I am imposing on you in asserting that free speech should be a norm. Now, that appears neutral, but it only appears neutral because I have a particular conception of neutrality. So, yes, like, my personal morality makes demands on others. But two points. One, so does any morality, right? And there is that tension of, like... How do you say you're for individual choice and freedom and so on, whereas actually your project is necessarily coercive? That is true of liberalism, but it's no more true of liberalism than it is of any other belief system. Um, any universalizing morality has that property. And liberalism in its better moments does a better job of making sense of that contradiction than other ideologies or other religions do. I'll stop there. So there's there's so much here that we could talk about. I I would so there there is one alternative, and you're right that um, we all have. It's very hard to not believe in something that we want to apply to others, and liberals fall fall under fall under the same tension. I'm increasingly coming to the conclusion that there has to be a kind of we have to find a way to suspend this desire for final answers in temporal politics. And that, to me, should be the project of a pluralistic society. And what I have in mind, like when I envision what this ideal society would look like, I think about you would have people you would have, let's say, some really conservative Muslims or Islamists, and if this is in the West, they would be a minority anyway, but um, you would have Christian, like hard right Christian conservatives, white nationalists, socialists, leftists of various stripes, classical liberals, left, you know, you'd have all of them, and they would have, there would be some kind of implicit compact where each group would suspend ultimate judgment. So we would we would have to agree that there will be no final victory in this life over any of the other component groups. And that means moving away from this idea of a universalizing morality. And I think that's what's dangerous, potentially dangerous about some more aggressive strands of liberalism is when they're not aware of their ideological bias, where they assume neutrality, but really they're only neutral from within. And that leads to a kind of a potentially, I don't want to say insidious, because that actually sounds a lot more negative than I would like it to sound. But this goes into the whole Patrick Deneen argument about why liberalism failed and so on. But we're never going to reach, we're never going to reach a societal consensus about the good life so what we need to do is to insert a heavy dose of modesty and humility about our truth claims. And that's what I try to do. So when I talk about people I disagree with, whether it's Islamists or white nationalists or whatever, I think that there has to be enough space for them that allows them to pursue their own ideological project from within existing state structures and within the law and constitution in a, in a given country. 
and they have we have to give them and we have to be careful not to limit or constrain them, which I think a lot of liberals want to do or try to do without even realizing it is to say that Trump supporters or or Christian conservatives or white nationalists are inherently illegitimate in terms of their ideological aims. And it should be our role as a society and a state to constrain in a somewhat aggressive way their ideological ambitions in a way that I consider to be undemocratic and very problematic from a pluralistic standpoint. Great. Um, I want to say a few things about liberalism here. Um, So I want to talk in general about the divide as you constructed it between, let's just call it a simplistic liberalism, an unreflective liberalism that says there are human rights, we know they're human rights, and if you don't agree, fuck you, right? Let's call that simplistic liberalism. Now, what you just described, I would say... Um, I mean, you, you, what you just described sounds to me very like like a John Rawls overlapping consensus sort of model, right? With with one with one different with one main difference, I think that I'll mention, which is that Rawls always comes back to this idea of when we make arguments in the public sphere, we have to appeal to public reason, and we have to be careful about not justifying our positions through comprehensive doctrines with our fellow citizens that there is this idea of a kind of more neutral public space that is reasonable and rational. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not a strict Rawlsian, so what, what, here's what I'm going to say. Let's say you've got, there's several layers by which liberalism, I think, can can pull itself out of the, the, the mire of particularism and of... Um, a false epistemic certainty, which all which all belief systems have. I mean, I would argue religion, more than anything, has false epistemic certainty just baked into the cake, right? Um, so, how do you get out of the the we actually just don't understand the very the world very well, um, both descriptively but also morally? Like our moral concepts are very vague, very difficult, very contested. So the first level liberalism is just simplistic. This is the truth. Fuck you. You're wrong. Then there's you know with with a few tweaks this sort of idea of a Rawlsian overlapping consensus in that maybe we can carve out this argument that that there's there's a sphere, there's an area of the Venn diagram, right? Um, That's definitely an improvement over the simplistic liberalism. I'd argue there's one more element you want to bring to liberalism to really get it off the ground in self-consciously comfortable with epistemic uncertainty, which is the idea of progress and development, which was very much a part of liberalism a century or and a half ago with people like John Stuart Mill and Hobson and Hobhouse, um, and has actually sort of faded from modern liberalism. But both the simplistic fuck you liberalism and even the Rawlsian overlapping consensus are time-static models, which actually... Um, embed a sort of conservative assumption that there is a sort of static, optimal state of society, which both probably just isn't the case, and is also... I don't see how you can make the the idea of this this is the the sort of optimal condition of human society without epistemic overconfidence. And what liberalism at its best has done is to accept epistemic uncertainty and just position yourself as 
a very flawed person, a very flawed state of society, moving towards a better state. Not a perfect state, but a better state. And liberalism just becomes not a final goal or a final destination, but a set of, like, rules, a set of, like, guidelines which are open to interpretation and change to just what is our best guess to have the next generation better than us. Um, as John Stuart Mill calls it, the permanent interests of man as a progressive being. And if you see the role of a political ideology more as how do we manage a continually unfolding process, which we don't fully understand and can't fully control, you still end up with something that's particular, you still end up with something that won't be universally applicable, but you end up with something that can more self-consciously square itself with epistemic uncertainty. So that's my liberalism, and that's how I ultimately ground my political beliefs. That was quite long-winded, so sorry. So, well, first of all, I like that you coined this new term, simplistic fuck you liberal. <laughs> captures it quite well. But, so, I, I like what you just described. However, I do think that it's that some that that may be a kind of ideal, but because of certain starting assumptions within any kind of liberalism, I think that there's going to be a difficulty in maintaining the level of modesty and humility that you just laid out, because ultimately, um, even this more reflective liberalism draws on a kind of enlightenment rationalism about uh, about observable truth and being able to determine some things away from the context of religion or or um, or the metaphysical or supernatural. Um, and that kind of enlightenment rationalism, I think, inevitably leads some people to to want to order society in a particular way. And that's why we always end up having this strain of liberalism that tends to be more aggressive and somewhat illiberal in its own way and intolerant. And this is the kind of the. Um, what what I guess Stanley Fish would call the, the the inherent the inherent contradiction within liberalism or the paradox of liberalism. So I agree with you in terms of your ideal. I'm just skeptical that liberals can maintain that level of reflection without getting over ambitious. And this is where I think someone like Rawls and and most liberal philosophers they see pr the practice of politics as a means to the end of a more ordered society, a more rational society, where the practice of politics perhaps should be seen more as an end unto itself, that we practice politics because we disagree and there is something inherently conflictual about politics that will remain and there is no end to reach anyway. So this is where I'm very much influenced by the Belgian political theorist Chantal Mouffe, who... Um, there's too much to say about her ideas, but um, I think she's such a fascinating figure because she cuts against so much of what we take for granted. But basically, the, some of the ideas there are that politics is inherently conflictual, but she doesn't take it in the direction of Carl Schmitt, where if politics is inherently conflictual, we need some kind of like decisionist fascism to kind of impose order. No, she would say that all all social orders, hegemonic orders are contingent and imperfect 
and temporary. And politics is about um, managing that imperfection in a way that allows for a deeper pluralism and allows for a living with deep difference. Again, what I said earlier about not trying to reach, not trying to, not trying to um, reach a final endpoint or to defeat the people that we disagree with in in temporal politics. So it's agonism. Ag- um, so one of her books is called Agonistics, and agonism kind of allows for this kind of natural imperfection, and we just kind of. Democracy is about going back and forth between these different ideas, and we embrace conflict, we embrace confrontation, but in a way that is nonviolent and in a way that is peaceful and accepts the other as legitimate. So you have the friend-enemy distinction, but you try to manage the friend-enemy distinction by making it less totalizing, and you do that by accepting that your enemy is legitimate. There's nothing inherently illegitimate about the people you disagree with. So there there is this thing in a lot of political philosophy where the starting assumption is that deep pluralism is a problem to be managed. It's a problem in need of a solution. And I think to follow on from what you just said, yeah, we, we not only don't need to accept that pluralism, even fund, like foundational epistemic pluralism, is a problem to be managed. Now, there's, there's two ways you can think about that. One is a pure relativist point of view of, like, we're all going to have our ideas and that there's maybe no abstract truth to be found anywhere and it's all just personal preference. That's a way you can go, but I don't I just don't know that like leads anywhere useful or interesting. And it's just not operable at the level of society. The other way is to flip it on its head and say that actually there's a great deal of value in foundational difference. Like Our lives are enriched on a number of levels by having conversations with people who profoundly disagree with us, both in a sort of million way of, like, that's the best mechanism to search for truth, but also just on a more personal developmental level. Our lives are better living in non-uniform societies. They are richer because of it. You wouldn't want to live in a society where every single person was a Sam Harris liberal. That sounds horrible. You wouldn't. <laughs> you know. You know what I mean? Like, like you wouldn't. That that doesn't sound a deli- desirable static state. And then if you take the idea of progress that I talked about, that doesn't sound like a state that is. Prog- I mean, we call ourselves progressive, but that should actually mean something more than a label. It means we should believe in the possibility possibility of progress, the possibility of continually society evolving and unfolding itself. And But here's, here's the point, though. You're never going to reach a point where you get outside of the contradictions of a universalizing morality. So let's accept not just the non-problem, but in some ways the value, both personally, developmentally, both societally, both as a sort of free speech truth for, search for truth, of profound pluralism. Let's accept that's a valuable thing. They still have to be... I mean, you just said, but as long as you don't go killing people. Well, that in its... You know, it's a more minimal one. It's a more... Let's not even say correct. It is a more reasonable one. But that is still a universalizing claim about what is morally true, that 
we would have to impose on other people. If you insist it's your religious right to behead apostates, then yes, that is a that is a view that we will have to not tolerate in even the most progressive embracing, even the most nuanced and self-reflective liberalism will still have to have its moments where it's where the answer to like but why is my belief not tolerated is just because it isn't yeah so that, but, but this is why i think it's better to err on the side of of minimalism because on killing people um 99 of the population if not more agrees on that so i like i'm thinking more and more in terms of Issues that are settled versus issues that are unsettled. There are certain things that we don't need to relitigate. For example, we don't need to relitigate whether slavery is immoral. We have reached a deep societal consensus about that. Great. So if we want to um, have a universalizing morality on slavery is bad, that to me is less imposing and less coercive because it enjoys almost already, in a very literal sense, universal consent. I worry about universal, universalizing morality when it's like fifty-fifty, um, and um, but but then what's your basis for the like settled versus in play? Is like I, I'm not sure like what percentage of people would sign off on it is necessarily the strongest foundation. You, you, you're going to have to make that distinction somewhere. You, there's going to have to be some yeah, things it's where it's acceptable. It's a more acceptable and less contentious distinction. And once we start going from 99 percent closer to 50 percent, it becomes more and more contentious, which is where I think we are in part here in the U.S. now and in much of Europe is that. We live in 50-50 societies where each side has a different kind of universalizing morality, and we have to kind of take a step back and try to focus on the 90 to 95 percent category a little bit more and say that pretty much anything else is up for debate and for contentious politics. But generally – but one other way of dealing with it is these these issues would be less polarizing if – If we didn't, part of the problem is we have strong states. We have these strong, bloated, domineering states, particularly in Europe, but also the American state has become more powerful and through its regulatory powers over time and so on. And I think one reason we're so, politics has become so scary and frightening is because so much is at stake in elections because what the prize is the state. And I think one way, of moving away from this winner takes takes all politics is to think about weakening the state's control over questions of of universalizing morality. That's ultimately like I come back to that, that if we're never going to agree and we have these 50 50 societies, let's make electoral politics less contentious by agreeing on constraining the state, and that would apply to both sides in this standoff. I mean, that's another way maybe of looking at it. Yeah, I mean, we might disagree on that one, because I think there's there's a, there's 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 problems with that, in that I am sort of a welfare state liberal, and I think the problem with that is that when you decrease the size and power of the state, it's not as if that power just reverts back to people. Um, like, like, 
when things tend not to be state controlled in our society, they tend to be privately controlled. And yeah, say what you will about our politicians right now, at least in theory, we can vote them out. There is nothing we can do to challenge the power of a, a, a Jeff Bezos or of Facebook or of Twitter. That is a wholly undemocratic and in some ways quite tyrannical form of power that needs to be examined and critiqued and have its foundations and contradictions explored in exactly the same way as we do with governments. We should do it for both. But I do, I've heard this line of thought before about it's so contentious because the stakes are so big. I'm sure that's true descriptively, but then part of me just says, well, why is it so much of a problem that our politics is so contentious? Contentious is good. It means people are paying attention. And if people feel very strongly about it, we have still found a way where, by and large, they don't kill each other because of it. It, it is okay that people have foundationally different worldviews, be that Christian and Muslim, or be it, you, you know, the guy in Alabama who... um you know, loves Donald Trump and, like, my liberal New Yorker circle of friends. It is, deep pluralism is okay. It's not always a problem to be solved. Yes, yeah. Um, and, and this is actually the great success of, of democracy, and specifically American democracy even today under Trump, and European democracies by and large, with maybe some exceptions, um, that... You know, and this is why I, I've been quite critical of the democracy as dying narrative, because we've actually done pretty well so far that we do have, as you said, these deep differences. And if you look at it from the perspective of someone like me who's lived in the Middle East, where people have killed each other and there has been violence in the streets because people won't accept electoral outcomes, the fact that we were really angry at each other and we're very contentious, but for the most part, we're not killing each other. And there is a kind of minimalist victory there that we should cherish. It's not nothing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, um, and this is a very good point about corporations, that if you weaken the state, then you strengthen corporations. I guess I was thinking more about making sure there's more room for civil society, for religious organizations, charities, communities, states, municipalities, that governance can be more localized. Oh, okay. mm. and so I think there are other ways of looking at constraining the central state and maybe strengthening the state in a more local sense. Um, and I think we have to be more creative about that. I worry about the welfare statism of Europe. And I, I mean, I feel very relieved and very blessed that I don't have to worry about the American state all that much in my everyday life. But and would, I, you, would you necessarily have to worry about the state in your everyday life if you lived in England or even Sweden or something? Like, is that... Are these... They're larger in terms of, like, the share of the economy that they control? Are they larger in terms of their footprint on civil liberties? So, well, there are more limitations on freedom of expression. So, for example, hate speech, hate speech regulations are quite different. And, um, you know, the First Amendment is something that we have here in the U.S. that I think we sometimes take for granted. It's not quite the same in Europe, where there is 
you know, an ongoing debate, like so, um, Holocaust denial or attacking certain minorities or blasphemy. These are they're, that they're debating now in Europe, which I think that we have we're more protected against. And the state is involved in those debates, but also in France when it comes to regulating dress or um, I, I support universal health care, but I don't necessarily support NHS style universal health care. I don't want the state to be involved in making decisions about certain health care trade offs in a very aggressive way. And that does happen in, in various parts of Europe. Um, state involvement in education, the educational curricula in a more kind of aggressive way. I mean, these are things that it doesn't rise to the level of state involvement in, say, authoritarian states, but it just means that the state is more present. You feel it there and you depend on it more. And I, I don't and I don't want to sound like a conservative or a Burkean or, or, liber- or whatever it might be, but um, I do get worried about dependence on the state. And so, and, and this is where there's a real tension that, you know, you might want a welfare state model, um, but how do you do that without, anyway, that's a whole different thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I have stuff to say on that, but that would, that would be a whole other, <laughs> that would be a whole other conversation. I guess to like summarize where I'm coming from. So this is what's unique about politics, right? As opposed to other domains of discourse in that politics needs big bangs. Politics needs start moments behind which there is no appeal, right? So, yeah. Um, uh, famously, President Truman had on his desk a sign saying, the buck stops here. Or we have these in our mythology, right? We have, like, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, and, and all, all different states have them, and, and they may be mythical, but they serve a purpose of saying... This is the Fonzet Origa. This is the source of political authority behind which appeal cannot be granted. That's true in discussions of like, how do we decide um, who, who, what behaviors and what views get shut out, right? Like at some point you are just going to have to say, because you can't go around killing people. Why? Because I said so, right? And the, the example, um, I, I, again, Michael Frieden I'm referencing here, always used to give, is when the exasperated parent of a young child giving up on rational argument says, because I said so. That is a pure political argument. There's right. no appeal. There's no justification. All politics is going to have those big bangs, and you just have to use the tools of your ideology, your history, your culture, of moral and philosophical debate to, to, to say which big bangs, I won't even say correct, but are most reasonable. And I think a reflective liberalism does give you that better than conservative and certainly religious traditions do. Yes, I, I, I agree with that. I, I yes. Um, but at the same time, we're not really telling people they can't kill people because I said so or because you, Toby, said so. We, we are appealing to the law and the law is legitimate because there is consent and because the law, the law is legislated through a consensual process and through a democratic process. So people would simply be breaking the law. So that would be like, why can't people go around killing each other? Is because the law says that you can't, and the law was passed, and the law is legitimate. But if I keep asking why, you're going to get to a big bang, 
Why do I have to follow the law? Well, because the law was passed with consent. Oh, well, why is consent your standard? I believe in divine revelation. At some moment, that yes, that you will get to a because I told you so moment, <laughs> <laughs> and that's avoidable. So I guess you're at, there at at some level. We we all have our starting premises, and maybe with some of us, you have to kind of go through a variety of steps to get to the ultimate starting point. But you're exactly right, and even even if I go back to, and I think a lot. Uh, there is a religious influence to why we um, thou shall not kill. It's not a purely secular concept, right? right? Um, and then you would ultimately get to this question of, well, um, fine, God said so, but where did God come from? Like what? And you, you would keep on going, and at some level, you say, well, God exists, and God, God said so. Um, and a different iteration of that is because politicians said so or you know or we said so originally in terms of founding our new state so yes there is going to be a foundational premise that no one can ultimately avoid and i think you're right that our goal should be to find the most reasonable premises that are acceptable by the largest number of people which again goes back to what i was saying earlier about erring on the side of less contentious foundations right Okay. True Paul forever, but <laughs> No, that was good. Any um final words you want to leave us with if people want to follow you, um look up your work, where should they go? Yeah, sure. So, I am big on Twitter and uh which I really enjoy and I've actually uh I think Twitter in some ways has can be good for the world because you a lot of the ideas that I care about, I've learned about, uh, learned more about through Twitter. So you can find me there on um, my first name, first name, last name. So Shadi Hamid um, is my handle, and um, you can find my books on Amazon. Um, and um, for just articles in general, I'm a contributing editor at the Atlantic, and I have an Atlantic page. And for my research more generally, I have a Brookings page. Again, just search Shadi Hamid. Cool. Listen, thank you so much for doing this. I realized we ran over a tiny bit, but I thought I thought that was good. So thank you. Yeah, I really enjoyed this. Thanks so much for having me. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Political Philosophy Podcast. Next week, we're going to do something a bit different. I'm going to talk about the intellectual history of libertarianism from the 1800s through to today. Why that, I hear you ask. Well, as I say, I've been kind of getting into Twitter recently, and one of the things that Twitter does, which is quite fun, is it lets you poll your audience. So, um, I've done some just general polls just for fun, but then I've just been asking people questions. So, the context of this is... A little while ago, I did an audience questions episode where we didn't have a guest, and I just took questions from the audience. And I was a bit worried about this... Because I kind of thought, you know, I assume people mainly come here for the guests and who really wants to hear this weird British guy talk at himself for an hour. That just doesn't, like, I wasn't sure I would have wanted to listen to that. But whatever, I'd got so many questions and people saying, well, you talk about this, whatever, will you talk about that on the podcast? And 
None of them were an episode by themselves, but I did sort of want to take them on. So I did just a full episode. And when I looked at the numbers, it was actually one of our more popular episodes, which I say not only... Yeah, not only for my own vanity's sake, not merely for my own vanity's sake, but yeah, it was got a lot of views, and also the completion rate, so like the number of people who start the episode, who then end up going on to finish the episode, was one of the highest ever, which... Cool. So, this is still going to be primarily an interview show, but I took to Twitter, and I said, okay, if I were to do another sort of editorial episode what topic would you want me to take on? And we've got a few hundred votes, so enough for, like, a representative sample. And the topic that won out overwhelmingly, which surprised me, actually, was political ideologies. But that's great. That's actually the topic I'm most qualified. That's maybe a little vainglorious. I'm least unqualified to talk about. So I went out again. Which one would we want to hear about? Libertarianism. Okay, cool. Let's do that. And then I sort of posted a status about why I don't find the central claims of libertarianism to be morally compelling. And we had a great back and forth on that. Seriously, people really critiqued me and told me I didn't know what I was talking about. But it was in... in, Well, I had fun anyway. And then finally I put out a poll saying, okay, if I did an episode on libertarianism, would you want me to talk mainly about its intellectual history from a more neutral point of view? Or would you want me to talk about my own views on it? And again, somewhat to my surprise, people said it's intellectual history. Now... Um, They did only say that by a 55 to 45 margin, so what I'm thinking is, I'll do an episode mainly on its intellectual history, which I've been hitting the books for for a couple of weeks now, actually, um, to refresh myself, get some good quotes and stuff, and then I'll probably end it, you know, I'll try and do a mostly neutral history, but I'll probably end it by giving my own views, I don't think I'll be able to help myself. So, next week is going to be an experiment. Experiment, and I'd love your feedback once it comes in. So once it comes in, please do tell me what you think of it. And even if you're mainly here for the interviews, just check it out to let me know what you think. And if people don't like it, I don't have to do any more like this. Um, and then the week after that, we'll be getting back to interviews again. But that's what's coming up. So even if you're mainly here for the guests, I encourage you to check it out just as an experiment. And if it doesn't work, then that's the point of experiments, right? You learn something of, you know, in this case, we'll learn well. We'll not do that again. But I I don't know. We'll see how it goes. Um, I'm always open to, like, new ideas and, like subtly mixing it up with the formula of this podcast. So that's what's coming out next week. I'll close now. Thanks again for listening. As always, if you want to support the show, you can do so by sharing episodes, forwarding them to friends, or as I talked about for a little bit longer than I usually do at the beginning, you can sponsor us on Patreon. Big thank you to anyone who does any of those things. If you liked this episode, please do one of them. And yeah, I hope you'll join us next week.